So we are going to begin today in the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1. And we'll spend our time there today in Genesis 1 and 2. So why don't you go ahead and turn there. And we'll begin this morning in chapter 1 verse 26. And this is the word of the living God. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruits. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, Everything that has a breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And God bless the reading of his word. Father, we do come now to the preaching of your word, and we pray for your help. Pray that you would send your spirit, that he might fill me, that he might fill us, that we might be attentive in this time, God. The flesh is weak, and our stomachs growl, and our, our minds wander, but help us please supernaturally to be here present for this next period of time that we have to study your word. And would you use this to grow us as a church, as men and women of God, grow us that we might have a, a true biblical world, worldview. Grow us in our faith. Grow us to seek to conform all things to your purpose for our life. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The history of the human race begins with a wedding. I read that quote this week and I had to just stop and sort of sort of sit on that. And I think I elbowed my wife and said, This is this this is it's true, but I think it means something. The fact that God began all things, as we'll see today, with a wedding, with a union of one husband and one wife. And if that's true, and certainly I believe that it is, then it has implications as to God's design for humanity and the centrality of the family unit. Now let me say that um, don't check out if you're single or widowed or what have you, but we all, I think, can profit from those that have families, those that desire to have families, those that have families that are out, spread across however far they fly when they leave the coop, leave the net, right? But that we can all profit from these studies as we seek to conform our lives and have a greater grasp of God's Word. My hope, part of my hope in this study is that we will see God as the grand designer of all things. He has a design and a purpose in all that he does. 
everything that he does is perfect and beautiful and harmonious. You know, they said of the Lord Jesus that he does all things well. And we would certainly say that of God the Father, Son, and Spirit, that all he does is well. So as we embark on this study, we want to understand what the great designer has done. And I, and I kind of think of this series as a puzzle. Not that it's a mystery that we need to figure out, but that there's various pieces, and as a puzzle does, the pieces come together to form a perfect harmony and a cohesive unity. Right? But all the pieces are necessary to see the picture that the designer has created. They all fit together. We need to put them together. Where do they go? To see the design that God has made. But so often we like to take things into our own hands. You know, you take the pieces of the puzzle and begin to cut them up, reshape them as we want them to be. Um, if you have toddlers, little ones, they get eaten. They get the front of them ripped off. They disappear into the couch. That's why they make those puzzles of pieces that are this big, you know, so they hopefully don't get lost. But when you distort the pieces of the puzzle and rip the cover off and lose some, the puzzle's destroyed, right? You might have some pieces and some understanding of this corner or this half, but without all of the pieces coming together as they should, we miss the beautiful picture that the designer has sought to paint for us. So that's our goal, to take what God has given us and to put it together as he has seen fit and as he has designed. So we're going to see today this, this topic, the origin of the family, under four main headings. We're going to see an image, a mandate, a helper, and a covenant. An image, a mandate, a helper, and a covenant. We'll have a little time for uh, application after that. But before we dive into even the image of God, it starts and begins with the triune God of Scripture. As we think about the family, as we think about origins, as we think about creation, it begins with the triune creator, God. We believe and we confess that our God is a triunity, right? He is one, and yet he is three. He has eternally existed in one as one God, one being of God, but he is three distinct individual persons making up the Godhead, sharing the same essence and divine nature, yet distinct persons from one another. So let's look at the very beginning and see. What I want us to see here is that our triune God is present at creation from the beginning. So Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, Elohim was there. God Almighty, as we said a couple nights or weeks back in Sunday night, El Shaddai, right? the Lord God Almighty, He is there. The Father is present at creation. We don't need to, I think, argue about that. That's an assumption, right? In the beginning, God was there, and He made all things. He created the heavens and the earth. But look down at verse 3. It says, And God said, Let there be light. God spoke. And it came to be. God used his creative speech to create something out of nothing. The word of God is present at creation. John tells us in John 1, 
One, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So God's Word is present at creation. It, and He, is the very agent that God used to create. But then also, look at back in verse 2. We see that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. God's Spirit is present, God's Son is present, and God the Father is present. <clears throat> One commentator said this, God the Father creates all things through the agency of His Son, the Word, and by the power of His Holy Spirit. And we see these three persons together there at creation. <clears throat> and that's why verse 26 is even more profound. As we read it again, look there. Then God said, Let us... Make man in our image after our likeness. The first thing that we see in the beginning of creation, in the origin of the family, is an image. Namely, the image of God that man has been made in. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So man has been created in the image and likeness of the triune God of Scripture, Father, Son, and Spirit. This God that we confess has existed for all eternity, always, not just at zero, right, but always has existed in a joyful, loving relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They, if you will, have existed in a community of divine persons. God is not solitary with one person, but there are three that have eternally existed. Now, there's a lot that we could say about this. One thing I think is sort of profound is that only this God, our God, can truly love. Think about it for a minute. The God of Islam, Allah, is a is a solitary God. He is by himself. So before, if that was God's nature, or we think about a Jehovah's Witness, believes in, is a Unitarian, believes there's only Jehovah the Father. That God, before he created, could not love anyone. He may have been loving in the sense that he was, it was in there somewhere, but when he created, he would be adding something or doing something that he had never previously done because there was no one else to love, right? Only the triune God of Scripture is, is love. Ontologically, in his being, he is love because he's always loved, Father, Son, and Spirit, together in perfect harmony, perfect community with one another. And that relational, that that mutual loving nature is part of the pattern that is set for man. Man then, as the image or reflection of God, is to mirror or reflect God to the creation. Do you ever think about that, about yourself? The man in the mirror? You were created by God to reflect God to the creation. Yeah, yeah buddy. To reflect God to everything else. Listen to Anthony Hokema, who wrote sort of a classic, modern classic on this topic. He says, in man, God is to become visible 
the earth. In man, God is to become visible to the earth. Man is the only creature made in the image and likeness of God to reflect God to the creation. And as this God is triune, he is relational in his very essence, then the image of God is best on display within and through the family, within and through a community. Think about it. If a man is on an island by himself, one person, he is going to be limited in how he can reflect or image the nature of God. He can't display love. He can't display mercy. He can't display grace or compassion, maybe to an animal, but not to a fellow image bearer of God. So one person by themselves is limited on how we can image or reflect the character of God. So this image is seen best, I believe, in a family. As God is a triune being, Father, Son, and Spirit, His people are in His image and likeness. Part of that image is that we are relational people made to be in families, in communities. Another thing we see about this image is that it's passed down through the family. Look at Genesis chapter 5, really quick. Genesis 5. Verse 1, when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. So that's sort of a rehearsal of what we already read, man made in the image and likeness of God. Verse 3, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So all of a sudden now, man is having seed, having is being fruitful, and his son is made in his image. Seth is made in the image of Adam. And if Seth is made in Adam's image, then Adam being made in the image of God, that image is being passed down through his seed to his sons and daughters. Sadly, we would see also that his sin nature, since his son is made in his image, that sin nature has been passed down from Adam to his seed. So the image of God is passed down through the family. Another thing we see about this image of God is that it is one of the very things that gives humanity value and worth and dignity. The image of God in you is the reason that God esteems you much higher than every other single thing that he has created. A couple more pages over to Genesis chapter 9. The floodwaters of God's judgment have subsided. God makes a, <laughs> God makes a covenant with Noah here. And look what he says in Genesis 9, 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man... By man shall his blood be shed. So God institutes capital punishment all the way back in Genesis 9. Long before the law of Israel, he said, if you shed human blood, your blood will be shed by another man. And then he tells us why. For God made man in his own image. You have value and worth because you have been made in the image of God. That's why we say we believe that abortion is a satanic attack on that image. It is an all-out holocaust against image bearers 
made in the very image and likeness of God. So God has been made in the image of man. Secondly, we see that God gives his people a mandate. A mandate. This is sometimes called the creation mandate, dominion mandate, cultural mandate. Different language has been used. But look at verse 28. He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God gives Adam and his wife a, a, a mandate here, a dominion mandate, and there's four elements that I see here in this mandate. The first one is to be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. I think with a, a surface reading of this, we, we just think of having kids. You know, I mean, this thing isn't going to work if they don't have kids. Who have kids who have kids. That needs to happen. But if we think theologically, and if we think about what we just talked about with the image of God, there's even more happening than just filling the earth with people. But this being fruitful and multiplying is a mandate for the reproduction of godly seeds. It's a mandate to produce more worshipers of Yahweh made in the image and likeness of God. Adam, at least pre-fall, was to reproduce sinless sons of God in communion with God that would reflect the glory and praise of God to the creation. I just want to stop there and say, what a glorious vision for having children. Reproducing worshipers of Yahweh that reflect the praise and worship of God to the creation. I hope that you see that while, yes, formally, we, we find the Great Commission in Matthew 28, it really starts here. Right? That Adam was called to fill the earth with God worshipers, fill the earth with image bearers that would reflect his goodness and his glory and his praise to the world. So they're called to be fruitful and multiply, to reproduce godly seeds. Secondly, they're called to fill the earth. Eden was the starting point, right? Eden was the starting point. And so it is, again, with the Great Commission. We're called to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Adam and Eve were called to fill the entire earth with image bearers. Listen to Pastor Barcelos. He says the end, or goal, was an earth filled with image-bearing sons serving their creator, living in harmony with fellow image-bearers, and the entire created realm. The goal of this mandate was to fill the earth with image-bearing sons that serve their creator and live in harmony with their fellow image-bearers. We see that sin has brought a bit of a disruption in that harmony with our fellow man. Thirdly, he called them to subdue the creation, to subdue the earth, subdue God's creation. So man is to subdue and cultivate the earth, to have control and right over it and over every living thing. Now there's a, there's a, a mantra in our day, maybe you've heard it, maybe you've thought this at times when you see some things that grieve you, but there's people that say that the problem with the earth is us. 
We're the parasites that's destroying and devastating society. There's some that say we got to shrink this thing down, or we got we got to limit the population because we are the ones that are bleeding the earth dry. Now, I, I would certainly agree that we have been awful stewards at times of God's creation, just dumping radioactive waste into the ocean or whatever we do to make a buck and to save a buck. Right? We've done plenty of things that are not stewarding well. But it is clear from this text that God has called man to steward and to cultivate his earth. He's given it to us, but he calls us to steward it well, to put it in subjection. Every living creature, he said, has been given to you, everything that has the breath of life. And lastly, this mandate, man is called to have dominion or to rule over all things. Now, interestingly, the word here for dominion or rule, the Hebrew that's underneath that, your, your translation might say rule, mine says dominion. About half the times it's used in the Old Testament, it's used for a king, his rule, his dominion, his reign. And what I think that we're getting at here, what Moses, really God, but Moses being the writer, is getting at is that God bestows upon man a royal authority here in the garden. Adam is to be the ruler of the earth. He is given the rule and dominion and reign over the earth. God is king of kings, and Adam, it's been said, is a vice king or a vice regent under God's authority. God grants the right to rule to his image-bearing son, and he's bestowed this duty upon Adam to rule or have dominion over the earth as a vice king under God. So what do we see in this dominion? It is a charge to re reproduce sinless sons of God, to fill the earth with godliness, with image bearers that would mirror and reflect Yahweh. And man has been given the righteous rule of God to subdue the earth as a vice king under the authority of Yahweh. So that's the foundation. But what I want us to see here, as far as our topic of the family, is that this cannot be understood apart from the family unit. That it is central to what God is doing here at the very beginning of all time. So look in Genesis 2. Genesis 2, Moses takes the creation account and he gives us some more detail. Some some people somewhere have tried to say this is a, a second, this is a do-over of God. Something happened after the first, and God, I, I, let's get rid of that idea. God is, is sort of fleshing out the details of Genesis 1. In Genesis chapter 2, and he gives us some greater detail as to what happens. So chapter 2, verse 18 Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. You see there, just as an aside, Adam has dominion. He has the rule. God gives him the creatures and says, you name this thing. 
The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to If we were to read the Genesis account through, something, something sort of jarring happens there that we just read. Over and over, God speaks, God creates, he sits back, and he assesses his work, and he says, it's good, right? It is good. But for the first time, we learn something here that is not good. It is not good that a man would be alone. It is not good that Adam would not have a mate or a pair like all of the animals had a mate or a compatible pair. So the third thing we see in the origin of the family is this helper, a helper. It's not good for man to be alone. We learn that God's design is one of companionship, right? When he brought the animals to Adam, they all were in pairs, except him. He was solo at this point. He was by himself. And I think we can learn here also from what God doesn't do. We're instructed by what God doesn't do. God doesn't bring Adam three Eves or two Eves, right? God doesn't bring Adam another Adam, another helper in some way, right? God brings Adam one Eve, one wife. And we learn from the very foundation of creation itself that God's plan, God's purpose is heterosexual monogamous relationships. One man, one woman, as we'll see, cleaved unto one another, right? Not all the stuff that we hear or see today, but this is God's perfect purpose. Remember, we're looking at what the designer has designed, and we want his pieces in the puzzle as he sees fit. So what do we learn about this helper? Well, we learn that she is a helper fit or suitable for Adam. And there's a, there's a footnote in the ESV that says corresponding to or comparable or comparable to him. There is a fit that takes place between a man and a woman, not just atomically, but in their natures, right? Who, how God has made us. There's a strong one and there's a nurturing one. And these two come together. This is a helper, as it says, that is fit or really made for him. God's perfect design, bringing a man and a woman together. So the first thing we learn here about wives, specifically, is that she is to be a helper to her husband. That is God's word that he uses. She is his helpmeet, his helper. Now, this satanic sort of world system that we live in, that we function within, despises the idea that the woman would be a helper to her wife. And, yeah, I'll leave that alone. The, the world despises, so I was just going to say, we can see that in our young people, right? They've, they've bought this lie that, 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 you know, if a man holds a door for a woman, it's, it's, it's disrespectful. You know, what, 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 are, what are we teaching our kids? What are they receiving from the world? The world would say that this is oppressive and demeaning to call the wife the helper. The modern feminists would say that equality of value between man and woman 
demands equality of roles, right? That if we're really going to have the same value, then we have to have the exact same roles. Any subordination, any leader authority at all, means that the woman is devalued and thus she is less. But I want to show you something that, that is really, I think, just puts that argument to rest. Um, and that is something that Timothy Brindle brings out. This word helper, this word helper is a Hebrew word ezer. I might be mispronouncing that. But it's the Hebrew word ezer. And that word is used multiple times for God as the helper of his people. Psalm, let me give you three examples. Psalm 70, verse 5. But I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God, for you are my help and my deliverer. Psalm 146.5 Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. Hosea 13 verse 9 He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. Now let me ask you, is God diminished in any way when he identifies himself as a helper? Not in the least, right? And if God is happy to be the helper of his people, the eternal, infinite God is happy to be the helper of his sinful people that he is redeeming, then a wife is not at all diminished in her role as the helper, the one that comes alongside her husband. So ladies, and I'm going to do this often in this series, do you see your role as the wife of your husband as his helper? As God says, the God-ordained companion of your husband that is to come alongside and be a helper to him, be a blessing to him? Or do you struggle, as we all do in various ways, to try to have equal footing with him, to not take that sort of subordinate role? Or do you struggle just to take that authority from him altogether and to take his place? That certainly is a a product of the fall that we want to usurp the roles of husband and wife. The creation mandate could not be fulfilled without the helper, the wife, Eve. It is impossible to be fruitful and multiply. It is impossible for Adam to take charge and to, um, to subdue the earth and to fill the earth with image bearers apart from this helper that God has given him. And lastly, we see a covenant. Covenant. Now the word is not there, but I, but I want to show something. So verse 23, Genesis 23. This is good. The man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. I love this, this image of Adam because God has been bringing him all these animals. And I was just yesterday showing Charlotte a bunch of old pictures when, our, when Brittany and Haley were really small at the zoo and all the different animals, right? And you watch a planet Earth on one of these shows and marvel at the mind of God with all the birds and all the lizards and all the frogs and all the fish just vastness of creation. And I could see Adam being brought, you know, what the heck is this? Hippopotamus, orangutan, I mean, all of these animals, wow, what, you, what does that thing do? Right, a sloth, I mean, all of these 
the mind of God. But then he says, at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one has come from me. This one is suitable for me, compatible, comparable to me. And I will call her woman because she was taken out of man. The human race begins with what? God's ordination here of covenant marriage at the beginning of all time. Now something interesting that he says, he says man shall leave his father and mother. But in a Hebrew home, he didn't actually leave. He was to inherit the father's land and business. So the, the husband, the son that was having a, a, a was going to get married, would usually build on to the house of his parents. But what he does do, he does leave because the son comes out of the headship and authority of his father. Now in that system, there certainly was still some authority. He would respect his father as the patriarch. But he comes out of their headship and their authority to now be the head of his own home. He comes out of the nurture and the provision and the providing of his own parents to come out and now take that role. So the, so the, the, the husband certainly does leave father and mother. He leaves out from under their care and under their authority, and he now takes on the headship of the home that his father had. And it says that he ought to hold fast to his wife. The old word, in the, I believe the King James is cleave. Cleave unto his wife. Now this word is interesting. Because this word is covenantal language in the Old Testament. I, don't have, I didn't write down the Hebrew exact word. But this same term is used elsewhere for Israel that they are to practice covenant faithfulness. Let me read a couple of examples. Deuteronomy 10.20 You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him or cleave unto him. And by his name you shall swear. Deuteronomy 11.22 For if you will be careful to do all this commandment that I command you to do, loving the Lord your God, walking in all His ways, and holding fast to Him, or cleaving to Him, then the Lord will drive out all these nations before you. Deuteronomy 13.4 You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him, and keep His commandments, and obey His voice, and you shall serve Him and hold fast to him, cleave unto the Lord your God. Practice covenant faithfulness with God. The word uh, for hold fast or cleave, it means to cling to or to stick to, to become glued and fixed together as one. I, we were once two, and we are now one that have come together in one unit. The, 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 the cleaving together of husband and wife is expressed and consummated in the one flesh union of the marriage bed of a husband, one man, one woman. So we see that the history of the human race begins with a wedding. It begins with a covenant union between two image bearers of God as they are called to be fruitful and to fill the earth with worshipers of God. So three points briefly of application as to what we might this might mean for us here today. One, one little aside, it's interesting that the family unit has really stood the test of time. 
you know, God creates, he makes the man and woman to come together in a family. And while the family has been abused, filled with sin, twisted in different cultures, every culture, basically, of all time, everywhere, the family is central to a society. Almost in every, without exception. It's just sort of fascinating how this has stood as this is God's design. But firstly, and I'm sort of recapping here, the purpose of families and marriage is to pass on God's royal image, to produce godly seed that worship Yahweh and fill the earth with the reflection of his praise and glory. The purpose of the family is to pass on God's royal image and to produce godly seed that worship Yahweh to fill the earth with the reflection of his praise and glory. We will get much more into this idea as the weeks come, but I just want to ask you as we think about that, do you see your home in this manner? Whether your kids are gone, whether they're there, whether you're getting started, whether you desire to have a home filled with children, whatever your situation is, do we see our purpose in life with, with children to pass down, to reproduce worshipers of Yahweh, to fill the earth with his image and reflection? Husbands, do you see your wives as the wonderful helper that God has given you, the God-ordained one to come alongside to help you fill the earth with the praise of God? Do you see her as the one God has called you to nurture and to care for and to love and to lean? Wives, do you see yourselves as the God-ordained helper of your husband, called as one to come alongside with him to rule and subdue the earth and to fill it with godliness? Children, little ones, do you see yourselves as the godly offspring of your parents, that they're training you up to send you out, that you are an arrow in the bow of your father, that he is sharpening, that he will one day send out to plunge into the heart of this world. Secondly, the image and praise of Yahweh is not passed down passively. It's not passed down passively, but through faithful instruction of parents. Now, certainly sinners pass down the fact that we're made in God's image. That is true. But what we've seen is the goal was, was God worshipers, right? Those that reflect the praise of Yahweh, those that love Him and are in communion with Him. And that, as you know, does not happen passively. Think about Adam. He had to teach his wife. He was a prophet to his wife. God told Adam not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God had given him that, that mandate. And he had to come to his wife and say, Thus saith the Lord, God has forbid that we touch and eat that tree. He had to teach his children that God has called us to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. God has called us to subdue the earth and to rule and have dominion. We see in Genesis 4 that Cain and Abel brought sacrifices to God. Who told him to do that? It could have been God directly. It was likely their father. Someone had to instruct them that they were to bring an offering to the Lord. They could have just been bringing something to, to give him. So families, whatever shape your family has today, do you see your home as a discipleship center? 
as training ground for the spiritual formation of our kids, of our spouses, for their grounding in the truth, for their understanding that our home, for me and my house, we will serve Yahweh. He will be central in all that we do, that we will commit our best to Him, that we will not build Him and His worship around our lives, but we will build our lives around Him and His worship. Number three, and I think this is obvious, but it needs to be stated, God's vision for the family and marriage is glorious and profoundly more rich than the world's sad picture in our day. There's a little adage, it changes a little bit, but something like this, a boy for me, a girl for you, that's enough, and now we're through. That's sort of the mindset today, even less than that, right? We, we live in the day of, of childless homes or single child homes intentionally. I ran across a group not that long ago, somewhere on the internet, that had more than a million people, and the title of the group was Childless. And these were people that were intentionally, joyfully hating children, hating families, loving abortion, celebrating me serving myself and my life without the hindrance and, and um, just problem of kids. I mean, it was, it was sad to see some of the stuff that they were saying, but that's the air that we breathe today, right? Children are, are an annoyance. They, they, they get in the way. They need to be put out until they can shut up and get in line and be seen and not heard. They're a hindrance in the world's eyes. But God's vision for the family is glorious. And he has called us to shape and form image bearers that would reflect his image to the world, that they would be sent out, that we might fill his earth with the reflection of his great name. So I hope, I hope you see, beloved, that as we embark on this study, the family is no accident. The family is not incidental to what God has done in creation, but it is part of the very core of his beautiful design. And it is one piece of the puzzle that he is bringing together to form this beautiful vision that he has for his people.